For the first time I come here, I go out from my country. This is my first time. Yeah, from Senegal, but this is the first time I go out. And when I came, I saw different people here, meet different people, Russian, Brazilians, Spanish, French. Really, very nice. I'm David Goldblatt, this is Game of Our Lives, and what you've just heard is Senegalese fans on the ground in Russia, sent to us by Al Jazeera's Tristan Redman. With me as usual is Al Jazeera journalist Tony Karen and our producer Roger Shah. Tony, did you find yourself singing along with those Senegalese fans? I know they're close to your heart in this World Cup. Well, they're representing for all of Africa, as their coach Ali Yususe says, Senegal is flying the flag for all of us and we are absolutely 100% as a continent behind Senegal. They bring something so special to the game. And you know, I want to say, anybody who tells you that that game was an upset, why shouldn't a team featuring the likes of Sadio Mane, Idrissa Gueye, Sheikh Kouyaté, Koulibaly, Diop, why shouldn't that team actually outplay Poland in every department of the game? It's the assumptions of a lot of the media in covering this are really worth unpacking here. You know, I've got to bring up on that the extraordinary tweet put out by Alan Sugar, who um, is a notionally a businessman, but is mainly a reality TV star fronting The Apprentice over here in the UK. And he put out a tweet, which was a picture of the Senegalese team and photoshopped in front of them is the big sheet with sunglasses and designer handbags. And the message is, you know, all Senegalese, all Africans are migrant workers on the streets. I just wondered what you made of that and what you made of the backlash to it. Well, I think, you know, Alan Sugar, you know, former Spurs owner Alan Sugar is a well-known bigot. Carlos Kickerball was his term for foreign players in the Premier League. But I think that actually he is an egregious form, maybe a cartoonish, outrageous form of a much deeper problem of the coloniality of football. And Ali Ussisse, the manager of Senegal, has really brought that into the forefront, not only by the fact that he's the only black manager at the tournament. He's only the seventh black manager ever at the World Cup. Okay, so that is an extraordinary fact. Let's just absorb, let's just absorb that. Seven black managers. And you think about the ethnicity of who is on the pitch at this tournament, let alone the ones of the past. That is an extraordinary injustice. Exactly. And it really reflects a deep, deep bias in the establishments of football. And Cisse is very conscious of this. So not only does he hail the victory of opponents saying, at the same time, of course, that wasn't as sweet as the victory over France in 2002, because, of course, France colonized Senegal. So he's very aware of the anti-colonial dimension of those victories. And by the way, he's brought in all African backroom staff and he's saying, where are the African managers? Really, what is deeply at work here? What do we have to unpack to actually get people to recognize African players have commandeered this game, made it their own, and when are we going to actually recognize their ability to basically run the game in the way that Cissé is doing so effectively? Can I also say, as well as being a a fantastic coach, his presence on the touchline is absolutely scintillating. Yeah, he's been lighting up the internet. People have been saying, you know, Gareth Southgate is the best-dressed man and the most animated man in the box. But I tell you, he's got nothing on Cissé. Nothing. (laughs) 
But the real surprise of this tournament so far is surely Russia. No team, no team was pilloried so much by its own public in a run-up to a World Cup. And yet there has been this extraordinary rush of blood to the head. 5-0 against Saudi Arabia, 3-1 against Egypt. What do you make of the Russians? Well, I have to say, as one who would have pilloried this Russian team going in, I'm not entirely convinced. I haven't seen them given a real test. Uruguay might have been the team to do that, but Uruguay have been so bad themselves. Yeah, do you think the game with Saudi Arabia, I think, was possibly, that's my candidate for worst game so far? Absolutely. I, I mean, mean, really, Saudi Arabia, you know, you're going out of the World Cup, you've got two men in the box, come on, give it a go, how bad can it get? Yeah, I mean, nobody's taken the game to a Russian team of, you know, it's a journeyman team. Though I will say, I saw an extraordinary statistic on Twitter today, which said the Russians are running further and faster than any other team, like a kilometre and a half more than anybody else and with more sprints. So I can't verify that, but they're definitely on it. And so are the people of Russia. One thing that is certainly coming through from all sorts of sources in this World Cup is that there is a temporary transformation of public space in World Cup cities. It's vacation rules and the Russians, having seen the way in which you know foreign fans are being policed, are now out there and enjoying it themselves. I wonder how long it can last. Of course, that's not the only place in this World Cup where public space is being transformed. After Iran went down valiantly to Spain 1-0, once again, extraordinary celebrations in Tehran. And most extraordinary of all, the Azadi Stadium, the national stadium, was finally open to a mixed audience and women were in the Azadi Stadium in Tehran to watch Iran do their stuff. Tony, did you see any of the game? Have you picked up any of this in your trawling through social media? You know, I didn't follow the game directly, but I want to say on this issue, admitting women to football stadiums is a very popular issue in Iran. And it's not one that is, you know, limited to people who would be deemed kind of dissidents. Anyone who's followed Iranian politics for years would remember that former President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who, you know, in the West was regarded as something of a hardline nationalist, he championed women being admitted to stadiums as one of his core issues. So that might have been opportunistic, that might have been cynical, but there's a recognition that the Iranian public really wants this. Iran is not a Western democracy, but it's not unresponsive to public opinion entirely. But on this, it does seem to be bending. And for that, we can um, at least be grateful for the World Cup, whether it uh, is maintained in the long term. We'll see. Do you guys think that this change is going to stick around? Our guest on last episode, Mani Jazmi, was not so optimistic that really the forces of football could make much of a, a lasting impact. But yet, literally, like the day after that episode, we have women being allowed into Azadi Stadium. Uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. I'm always hopeful that progressive change will last. I'm always ready to see it reversed by the forces of darkness. So faint signs of progress in Iran, faint signs of progress in Russia. But in Western Europe and the United States, there's definitely a lack of progress during this World Cup. Lift your eyes beyond the football and children are being caged on the Mexican-American border. And in Hungary, the parliament has actually passed legislation to criminalise assisting asylum seekers. Nationalism is on the rise. There are troubling signs of xenophobia and racism 
everywhere. And that brings us to today's guests, Musa Ogwanga, someone who has a unique perspective on the issue of race, ethnicity in football. He's a writer, a musician and a poet based in Berlin. And currently he's writing the Offsides newsletter about the World Cup for the New York Times. I caught up with him on Skype earlier this week. Yes, hello. Hey, the great man himself. Hey, dude. Look at that. Good to see you. How are you? Great, thanks. How are you? You good? <laughs> I'm really good, man. I mean, you know how it is at this point in the World Cup. I kind of, like, was it really England last night? I've completely lost track of time and space. Completely kind of immersed. <laughs> just trying to sort of surf on the top of it. How about you? Good. I'm in quite a weird place at the moment because... I always find with the World Cup, there is a moment when you immerse yourself, right? You kind of sink into it and you're like watching three games or four games a day in some cases and the kind of political, moral backdrop to it does fall away to an extent. And it's trying to kind of not only keep yourself engaged with that, but keep people around you engaged with that. That's a challenge I find. For sure. Where are you watching the World Cup from? From an uh, undisclosed location in Berlin. Actually, no, I'm watching it from Berlin, but several different bars and other drinking establishments. What drinking establishment were you in for Germany, Mexico? Ah, there was a place called Santa Maria, I believe, in Kreuzberg, a Mexican bar. So, you know, places full of Mexicans. When they scored, the whole bar got a free shot of tequila. When they won, another free shot went round. Just wonderful people and a great energy. And the Germany fans who were in there were just so gracious in defeat. It was fantastic. That's amazing. Were they gracious the next day in the press? Because the German press can be pretty vociferous when it chooses. What did it have to say about that game? You know, it's really weird. There was a kind of, um, um, as you know, with the whole sort of Erdogan uh, situation, the Erdogan controversy. So before the tournament, a couple of German players of Turkish heritage, uh, Gundogan and uh, Erzl, posed with Erdogan before the elections. And... There's a real sort of nationalist backlash against that, you know, a sense of a sense of betrayal. There's been a slightly nasty edge around Ozil's performance, a sense that he wasn't really up for it because he's not really committed to the country. I mean, it's, it's amazing because in some ways we've become very used and almost blasé to the idea of a very mixed, very diverse German national football team, people of Turkish, Tunisian, Ghanaian, Albanian heritage. Um, and Germany seemed to be very comfortable and really, really seemed to like that. Do we now have a situation where the attitudes to migration and refugees in Germany are beginning to shift, or that we hear a shift in the conversation about the football team as well? Unfortunately, I think that the diversity of the German national team is not buying refugees and migrants as much social capital as it maybe once did. I think that they're almost a separate class of, you know, in quotes, good immigrants who are doing what immigrants should be doing. If everyone did what they did, the country would be fine. Not the ones who are kind of carpet bagging their way across Europe to steal from the German social welfare system. But the conversation here about refugees and immigrants is toxic, to say the least. It's toxic. Do you hear any similar kinds of conversations about the ethnic mix of other European teams? I mean, I'm thinking in particular Switzerland, who have, you know, nine players who were born outside of the country, Serbs, Africans, Cameroonians, you know, the whole range. Do you hear a similar conversation there or a different conversation about it? Well, actually, funny enough, you should mention, I was in Zurich working at the university lecturing there. It's been really interesting because 
the right wing, and this is something that people don't talk about because the conversation is, oh, the right wing is only rising because of economic anxiety. Well, look, I was in Zurich and it is many things, but it's not economically anxious. And the right wing is absolutely just going hell for leather in Switzerland. What this is really about is the threat of, I hate to say it, it's visible non-white people all over the place. And I think actually, rather than being a sign of the success of multiculturalism, I think that is almost a provocation in some quarters. You know, it is actually the culmination of the final nightmare. You've got this multicultural Swiss team, which people don't recognize themselves in. I think it's 15 out of 23 of the squad are of non-Swiss heritage. Now, for some people, that's wonderful. For me, it's a rainbow nation. It's great. For other people, it's a threat. You know, it, it's, it's actually the culmination of the kind of the white genocide, in quote marks, uh, the fact that Europe is being overrun. And it, it, to me, it seems ridiculous, but that's the discourse in a lot of middle-class homes across Europe right now. So what this makes me think, Moussa, and I'm really interested to know what you think, that we're just not having that conversation here in England. I don't hear that kind of conversation in this country. I feel like people are looking at the England team and saying, that's what urban England looks like, and recognizing, recognizing themselves in it. And I'm wondering from where you're sitting in Berlin, how it looks to you. I think that, I mean, it would, it would surprise me if that conversation is happening in the UK. I've always felt the UK, you know, the Brexit is driven in the UK, not just by xenophobia, but also driven by this parochial sense, maybe of uh, British exceptionalism. But the racial conversation is certainly, as far as I can see, less toxic around the England football team than it is around other countries. Uh, but look at look at Belgium for example. Look at Lukaku recently. This incredible place in the uh, the Players Tribune. I think it's called. I've got some things to say. That's right. Yeah. Uh, by by Romelu Lukaku, obviously the Belgian number nine. Yeah. Tell us about that, Musa. I mean, I read it. I, you know, it sent shivers actually down my spine. I thought that was one of the finest bits of writing and exposition by a football player ever I have ever read. What a beautiful human being. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the moment when that moment where. He realises his mum is mixing the milk with water for his cereal and that means they're broke and that means that he has to play for Anderlecht. I just like, yeah, right. I was just blown away. Yeah. What I love about Romelu Lukaku's essay is that he gave that interview, he wrote that piece at a time when his fame could not be higher, his profile could not be higher. He didn't need the flack of talking about the things he talked about. He talked about being poor growing up. He also talked about racism very, very openly, very explicitly. He didn't need that hassle, but he's so mature, he's so smart that he was like, I'm ready to take this. He understood the value. What I love about Lukaku is he's not, you know, he's not primarily a footballer. I get the impression he's primarily a citizen. And he understood the power of the conversation about race. He said, when I was doing well, I was a Belgian striker. When I was doing badly, I was a Belgian striker of Congolese descent. And I thought for him to articulate what so many of us activists, writers, whatever we call ourselves, have been saying on that stage at that point in history, and then to go out and put a performance like that against Panama was just, just extraordinary, extraordinary. Political activism at its best. And do you know whether that piece, I mean, I read it, you know, in English. I mean, do we know, is that is that out available in Belgium, in, in French or um, in Dutch? I think he's, the beauty of Lukaku is whichever language he speaks in, he's impossible to ignore. That's the beauty of it. And he understands that, you know, 
the funny thing is I spoke to um, a Belgian woman, a friend of mine, uh, the morning after the essay came out, the morning the essay came out, and she just nodding in recognition, she said, it's just incredible. The way that he broke down racism in Belgium, so we have to understand this, that there's Belgians who absolutely despise Lukaku. He would have written that piece knowing how hated he was, and he gave it anyway. You know, I think he inspires the same kind of ambivalence in some Belgians as Zlatan does, where the trade-off for the glory they enjoy, the cost is embracing basically someone who understands acutely what racism is and what to be the other is in their country. Um, it's so interesting, yeah, I, yeah, you, yeah. you talk of a trade-off here and you're absolutely right. It just makes me think, who would have thought, you know, just a, a few years ago that you would have Liverpool fans singing to Mo Salah and expressing a desire to convert to Islam? I mean, there are these moments, we've talked a lot today about the negative side, the stereotyping. Sure. There are moments of kind of cross-cultural breakthrough as well. And Mo Salah seems to be, you know, one small element of that. And I think we need to celebrate that. You're quite right. And I'm glad that we've started with the negatives because th this podcast is a bit like speaking to my sister on the phone every couple of weeks. <laughs> we always start with the bad news and end with the good. I think it's really important. And, and I think Mohamed Salah, what he's done has, you know, we can't understate that. We can't understate that because even if there are people that revert to their old prejudice, they can't ignore what a man he is. They can't know what a great human being he is. And if we look at history, if you look at the great athletes who've also been incredible political figures, we have to include him in that. You know, he may not be outspoken. It's difficult for a guy like that to be as outspoken as he would like to be. He posed recently with, with Ramzan Kadyrov. Now, I don't blame him for that. I blame the Egypt FA for putting him in that position. But this is a man who is clearly a good, decent, kind human being. And at this time in history, we can't have enough people like that. We just can't. Yeah. Actually, I think that his, his quiet decency in many ways is just as powerful as any overt political statement that he might otherwise make. Last question. I have been enjoying your Twitter thread where you've been finding a rapper whose career or disposition or style in some way matches one of the teams at this World Cup. I just wanted to ask you, as a poet, are there any poet analogies? I mean, who's the T.S. Eliot? Who's the Pablo Neruda? Are there any of those connections that you've noticed? Wow, do you know, it's funny because I was thinking of this just this morning about like, for example, like Fernando Pessoa. And I, it's funny because the Portuguese poets are quite mournful, but the team is not mournful. The team is quite resilient and quite functional. So I don't know, the T.S. Eliot, T.S. Eliot, who is he? He's highly technical, respected rather than loved. Okay. I would actually say he's, I would say he's Italy. He's Italy. You and can't just, well, look, the wasteland, I think, you know, there's, there's all, we, we could take it there, we could take it there. Let's say, I would say that Byron, Byron is Brazil. They seem to be having too much fun to get as much work done as they have. There is a darkness, there is a cynicism there, but there's overarching beauty. So Byron is Brazil. I love it. Um, one more, one more. Okay. Um, Alexander Pope is, Alexander Pope is Uruguay. Pragmatic on one level, a bit of an underdog, was a surprise hit with the Rape of the Lock, sold 3,000 copies, I think, in four days. So he was someone you wouldn't expect to be as big as he was back then, but he was huge and has enduring quality at the last the ages. Alexander Pope is Uruguay. Man, that is a performance for the ages, Musa. Fantastic. <laughs> if there's as much poetry in this World Cup as there is in you, man, we're going to have a good one. Thank you so much for being on the show. Please come back again. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.
You can follow Musa on Twitter at at Okwonga. That's O-K-W-O-N-G-A. And you can read him throughout the World Cup in the New York Times. Tony, where's the poetry for you in this World Cup? Well, he didn't answer your question about Neruda, and that got me thinking. And I'm like, well, you know, Chile didn't qualify. But to be honest, the long dead Neruda was Brazil 1982, I think. <laughs> David, do you any other another poet analogies that were, were inspired by Musa's take? Uh, I, no, sorry, dude. I was trying to figure out who, who Saudi Arabia would be. The best I could do was E.E. E. Cummings in that my four-year-old niece can do this. <laughs> Hey, man, I love E.E. Cummings. Wash your mouth out with soap. I like my body when it is next to your body. I mean... it is. Oh, man, and loves big eye crumbs. Please. It's very interesting, but it's not English. (laughs) Who would the United States, by the way? I wanted to ask Musa who the United States would be on his rapper analogy. Tony, I think you're the the person for this. (sighs) The United States would have to be Coolio. (laughs) Coolio? One, two, three, four. Yeah, I don't know. You know, just sort of third tier, third tier rapper. Now, I would say he's, uh, the United States is more like Madonna in that she tried rapping that one time, but her strengths clearly lie elsewhere. <laughs> also past her prime, best days behind her. It's between that or Vanilla Ice. Too, too gloomy, dude. <laughs> too gloomy. <laughs> what can I say? You know, you just the World Cup's coming to the United States and the continent in 2026. Well, basically, I'm going to now be thinking about rappers and poets whenever I watch any of these upcoming games, which, speaking of which... What what to, to watch? Watch. What, 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 what to watch? All right, so you guys have not let me down so far. Poland-Senegal was fantastic. There's a whole slew of games coming up once again. David, what should I watch? Well, for those who want to follow up on the themes of our conversation with Musa, you really can't beat Serbia-Switzerland. I mean, the Swiss team has nine members of the squad born outside the country. The starting 11 often features five to seven people whose roots are absolutely not traditional Swiss. And of course, we've got a lot of ex-Yugoslav folks who ended up in the post-war diaspora settling in Switzerland. So Kosovans, Albanians, Serbs, not to mention the Cameroonians. So just to see that kind of extraordinary diversity on show will be pretty Pretty interesting. And hey, you know, if Serbia win, it'll be interesting to see what goes down in Belgrade. Who's the favourite in that one? I don't know, actually. I think it's pretty closely balanced. The Swiss were good enough to get a draw with Brazil. I, you know, I'm expecting a draw, to be honest. All right. Tony, what are you going to be watching? The game that really intrigues me coming up is what I would call the Red Sea derby between Egypt and Saudi Arabia. As a football spectacle, not very interesting. What we would call a dead rubber, nothing rests on this game in terms of progress in the World Cup. Neither team can progress. But football very often is a proxy for national sentiment. And you have to consider the significance off the field of this game. Now, Saudi Arabia basically sponsored the coup in Egypt that brought Sisi to power. The current regime in Egypt has been bankrolled by Saudi Arabia. So... You know, there's there's that. There's the fact that since the coup, the only public protests on the streets of Egypt that we've seen came in a moment where Sisi agreed to hand over a set of long-contested islands that Egypt had controlled in the Red Sea to Saudi Arabia, which had counterclaims. People were so angry in Egypt that they came out on the street despite a regime that really doesn't tolerate street protests, that's happy to massacre street protesters, as we've seen before. So there's a lot of national sentiment that is very, very strongly 
anti-Saudi. So this really is a moment for the Egyptian football team to be the proxy for some national sentiment that could issue, you know, a rebuke not only to Saudi Arabia, but perhaps in some way to express how it feels about its current regime. And it would just be nice to see them go out attack and, you know, play the way they can. There were kind of moments of that in their games and it would just be great to see Mo score a goal from open play despite his shoulder. And can I just say, the other question that hangs over this World Cup is when does Sergio Ramos get his karma back for Mo Salah's shoulder? When does that moment come? I was watching the Iran-Spain game and, and wondering about that. I mean, I will say the Iranian goalkeeper didn't do himself any favors either. There was that interaction, I don't know if you saw, where Ramos like barely grazed his foot and the keeper just went down in a heap and was whining all about it. I mean, I was rooting for the underdog for Timo. Yeah, man, man, but Sergio Ramos is the master of the dark arts, you know, not to mention Busquets on the uh, on the Spanish team. So, you know, that is just like, talk about dose of your own medicine. Yeah, that's sure. quite a... While you're talking about Sergio Ramos, we should also note that his former uh, centre-back partner from Real Madrid, Pepe, he's patted on the shoulder as he's walking away by... Uh, a, a, a Moroccan player and he goes down like a sack of potatoes like he's been shot and like, what was know, that mate? The, the Oscars are a very long way away they are and with that thought I would say it's enough post-match analysis we're recording this once again right before another match Argentina and Croatia is coming up Tony Karen needs to catch a train so it just remains to say thank you very much Tony for being with us as ever hasta la vista la victoria siempre <laughs> Thank you very much, Roger, for being with us at the controls. Thank you, guys. And just to say, this show is a production of Al Jazeera's Jetty Studios. It's recorded at the Soundtown Studios in Bristol, UK. The music is by Bang Data. We are coming out during this World Cup twice a week now, so we'll be back on Tuesday. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Game of Our Lives. I'm David Goldblatt. And we'll see you on Tuesday. Yay! Excellent. Can I go?